0: This is The Strategist, episode 802. My name is Zane Veldry. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. Chance, how are you? Pretty
1: good, Zane. It is um, a yet another day in paradise. It is cloudy. It is gloomy. We're not allowed to leave our basements. And um, Stephen Carter continues to be irrelevant.
0: I mean, nothing makes me happier than Stephen's irrelevance and the rain. Stephen, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing It doesn't doing matter great.
0: because you're irrelevant, right? Please so <laughs> <at> don't. <laughs> Every fucking week. (laughs) How you doing? You weren't you weren't here last week for the last week's episode. You were of course I I wasn't
2: feeling good. I wasn't feeling good
0: you called us each about a dozen times claiming you had COVID and said that the tests were wrong and that Alberta was being run by some fascists because their tests uh were were providing uh false negatives. Listen, Uh, I
2: I'm still a big fan of the nasal swab. This throat swab crap is not nearly as accurate. Not nearly as accurate.
0: Stephen is a changed man, having now recovered from COVID. I'm so glad. Corey, you doing well? I'm doing okay. It's, um, you know, it's it, it continues to, um, to great,
1: the fact that uh, I have to do a podcast with you two each week. But other than that, I'm doing pretty good. Good.
0: Let's move it on to our first segment. Our first segment. You're watching this motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> I want to talk about Donald Trump. It's been a while since we've talked about Donald Trump. And by a while, I mean since last week, Guys, let's let's zoom out a bit this week because I want to talk about his his overall strategy and and a, and a pulse check on how it's working. So this week he talks about how you know he himself is taking uh, hydroxychloroquine, uh, memeing out posts about Mitt Romney, sucking up all the oxygen at those press conferences. Basic question, Corey: Is this still working? Is this still the right political strategy for Donald Trump?
1: I I, I guess I I mean the guy is. Uh, his lowest approval rating has been 37 and his highest 45 in the past, what, almost three years at this point. So what are you going to say? I mean, obviously it's still working. And and even as Americans are dying by the tens of thousands, he gets – right now on 538, I'm looking at it, his approval rating is 43.7%, uh, which in some sense, like, hey, that's less than 50%. Four in 10, more than 4 in 10 Americans give this guy a pass. That is nuts. So I mean, obviously, it's still working. He's just keeping everybody spinning, and uh, maybe that should disappoint us. It certainly disappoints me. Uh, but it really, I think, just speaks to the guy could do anything. Nobody cares. Everybody's in their corner. They're all fighting their fight. They're ignoring
0: each other, uh, and they're speaking to their bases. So the same health check as before, uh, Carter. For, for for you, what do you think? Is this is this still the right thing to do? And you know, listen, we're not too far away from an election now. So this forty three percent and a mobilized base is one thing. But can he
2: continue on this path? Well, I mean, he, he, he won. Um, and he won using this strategy of the uh, being the reality show candidate. Now he's the reality show president. And he is speaking only to his base. And he is polarizing the other side and making uh, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden turn into these um, people who only speak to their side. So the reason he's got 43.7 is that the group of people who are saying, who are that 43.7 are saying, I'm not even going to pay attention to the other side. I'm not even going to listen to what they have to say because they just hate Donald Trump. And so if you don't have truth anymore and you just have tribalism, then it's very easy to, for him to hold on to the very small group of people that still like him.
0: Corey, do you agree with that? Do you feel like that's what he's doing?
1: I, I, you know, I always wonder what Donald Trump, I always have since we first started talking about him in the, the primaries as a serious candidate, serious used in a very different sense than I normally use it, mm-hmm. how much of this is intentional and how much is just like he's, he's like a, you know, it's instinct. He's, he's an animal trapped in a corner and he lashes out, he does crazy things. And then we say, Oh, how very clever of that fox to bite that person's finger, you know, <laughs> but the, the, um, the thing that I think that both sides really need to think about at least the reasonable sides of both sides need to think about is how much fodder they are giving to the other like from a base point of view so you mentioned pelosi there pelosi calls him morbidly obese the other day probably not wise that's gonna run in right wing twitter i mean he's not i mean he's 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 a fat guy he's not morbidly obese at least not as it's defined uh in any kind of clinical sense and there's just so much exaggeration and so much naughtiness and there's so much bad behavior that it becomes very easy to find excuses to tune the other side out. And, um, as long as that's going on, yeah, they're just going to say, this is my brand. This is, this is my team. I'm well, with I, these guys ride or die with Donald Trump and the Republican party. Well, Carter
0: Carter,
2: it goes further than that, too, because it means that we're not talking about the right things. He fired his fourth inspector general on Friday, another late night purge on Friday night, getting rid of people who are investigating him or his team. He fired his fourth one. This is four. That's a lot. And he's and he fired him. And what we're we talking about today, he's morbidly obese and he's taking some drug. I mean, Zane, the fact that you were able to say the name of that drug, I got to tell you, that's pro. You're very pro. I take it Uh, myself.
0: So yeah, no, I have to. (laughs) Uh,
2: We're talking about those things because that's the Trump playbook. Oh, I did something shitty. I'll do something even more shitty, but it's only going to last three days and no one's going to be able to remember because our collective memory is about 14 seconds with this guy who continues to set off nuclear bombs. Boom, another new thing. Boom, another new thing. That's his whole modus operandi.
0: I'm hearing from both of you, it's still working. And, and before I get into Pelosi and Biden, which I want to do in a second, let's talk very quickly about the media,
2: Corey. How,
0: how if you're if you're providing comms advice, strategic advice to a media outlet in the states right now, and of course you cannot provide the journalistic sort of like what you need to do, but how would you tell them to cover this thing? How would you tell them to put the right stuff on 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 air, online? What, what would that look like?
1: Oh, look, I think one of the challenges here, and I mean, not to get like. So, basic and cliche about this is that they are listening to people like me. They are thinking about it from a comms point of view, what sells, right? It's not really about uh, holding people to account. It never has been, by the way. It's not like newspapers in the 18th century were like these, you know, these public works that were paragons of virtue. They were like these shitty, muckraking rags that talked about what bastards everybody was and they sold them to their partisan audiences. And so, let's not like, you know, pretend otherwise. But um, if, if the advice was what sells newspapers, what gets people watching television, God, keep doing what you're doing. seems to be working. You know, you're out there. You're doing your thing. Way to go, Fox News. If the question is like appealing to the better angels of journalism, I don't know. I mean, just make everybody go watch A Few Good Men a few times. I don't know, Zane. Like, like, what do you think is going to be different here? Like, this is just how the news media is. And I don't mean that as a dig. I mean that as that's that's just, you know, it's like a... Hornsby song. Some things are never going to change.
2: Yeah. We, yeah. We, Carter, Carter if take you take don't take- say,
1: Oh, don't you believe it? I'm just, <laughs> I don't know what we're even doing here.
2: Oh, don't you believe it? Um, there you go. Was that good? Are you happy? I still don't no, know was, what we're doing
0: here, but that's fine. Keep that's
2: going. A, <laughs> it was pretty fucking tragic. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, we have, first of all, let's understand that we have this, we have this collective memory of the golden age of media. And the golden age of media was a long time ago, and it didn't last very long. When it was there, it came up out of the propaganda times of the nineteen, uh, the nineteen forties, related to war. Came out of that, and was as you know, we we had the anchors that we could trust on our television news, and and those people were beyond reproach. But Corey's point about the media never having really been these paragons of virtue is exactly right. Um, But right now, I don't want them necessarily to be paragons of virtue, but I would like them to be uh, focused on things that actually matter. Um, This is a pretty important time. And reporting uh, on the orange lunatic constantly when we have governors um, in the United States that are actually doing the work, I say point to the governors, cover the governors.
1: Corey, before we move on. Well, look, if you want, if you actually want some different outcomes here, you're going to have to talk about interests and how to align those interests. So how do you make holding Donald Trump to account marketable? How do you make that popular? How do you make that actually have an audience besides the people who watch PBS on Sunday morning and uh, talk about what they read in the New York Times the day before with their spouse? It needs to be broadened. It needs to become more populous. And um, that's going to require a bit of a sales job. So as much as I said, the problem is they're talking to comms people and what sells. You're going to need to bring in a certain amount of sensationalism to this coverage because uh, it sucks. But you, you um, I, it's not even fighting fire with fire. It's acknowledging that these are commercial operations that have commercial interests. And until you can have a commercial interest in holding the president to account, forget it.
0: I want to move on to to Biden, because uh, you guys have both mentioned him. You know, right now, Joe Biden is 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 an old grandpa stuck in a basement with a with an internet feed trying to run his campaign, and so he puts himself into a, into a corner because of this pandemic. But what does Biden need to do, and is he doing what he needs to do, Carter? Like, what do you make thus far of the last couple of weeks of the Biden strategy, where the campaign's been focused on simply trying to get this guy to go viral? Uh,
2: you know, wh- what what is he doing right, and what does he need to be doing? I think he's he's, I don't, I mean, it's hard to do anything right when you're trapped in your basement. But at the same time, I think <laughs> that what he's doing is he's he's taking, um. He's trying to lead. He's trying to say what I would do. What I would do. What I would do. And the, what I would do is aren't playing. Um, no one's listening to the podcast where he's outlining in detail what he's going to do. No one's you know like his tweets, his 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 media that he's putting out. His proclamations aren't fall, aren't landing anywhere, but there's a tremendous market right now for empathy, tremendous market for him being good old Joe who understands me. Um, that is his fundamental strength. That's who people like. That's what they like about him. And he's walked away from that. He's walked away from that uh, brand positioning because he thinks that he's got less time for it because he's trapped in his basement. And my argument would be no one thinks that Donald Trump is doing a good job. You don't need to contrast to Donald Trump in order to get Joe Biden would do better. Show us who you are at your core, and Joe Biden at his core is a decent man who has the ability to empathize with the with the with other human beings. That's his core strength. That's who so he So you is.
0: lean you lean into empathy, Corey. Is that the right strategy right now? If you're Biden, what do you, what are you doing? Do you, do you need to be a knife fighter? Do you need to attack Trump on his own turf? <sighs> Look, I mean. Joe
1: Biden is what he is, right? And Biden trying to lead from his basement is the perfect metaphor for his campaign. The guy is literally hiding from Tara Reid accusations <laughs> uh, in his basement right now, and it is it is unfortunate, and it it is rooted in this unhealthy machismo. But people do want to see leaders out there standing in the Rose Garden without their mask and saying, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna." What I don't know, fifty style box the virus. I'm not really clear what it comes from, but he looks weak and. Um, and and that is not going to go away as long as he's trying to run the resistance from from a bunker under siege. We, I mean, the, it's just it's so so damning, you know how he comes off, and it ties into the problems he's got on his campaign right now. I like the terror Reid accusation. Listen, Zane, last week you talked about him being a glad hander and needing to be out there, and I it bothered me at the time, and I I don't want to give you a pass on it, and I did last week because Carter wasn't here, but. It's not it it just he's not a glad hand. I mean, the guy was not exactly filling up arenas like a rock star. He's he is entirely the safe choice the Democrats made because they didn't want to risk another choice because they didn't want to risk four more years. And that's the classic frontrunner mistake. You take no risks and you end up with something that that's kind of shitty and it's not paying off. I mean, the polls right now show Donald Trump with a lead in battleground states. I'm not saying that'll hold. Um but yeah, he's done, like tens of thousands of Americans are dying more than necessary. The guy has fired his his fourth inspector general and he's right now, if an election is held today, probably going to win the election. That's what you're getting with Joe Biden right now. So they do need either a bit of a shakeup or they need to call this campaign what it is and just step out, just say everything is about not being Trump.
0: You know, Carter, take no risks and end up with something shitty has been your campaign motto for a long time. Um, so, so how do you how do you compare this? I'm sorry. These, these birds are just I mean, brutal. I know, brutal. I know. I know. I know. So, I forgot you. I, I forgot mean... you. I forgot you thought you had COVID. Okay. Oh. So. <laughs> so okay. <laughs> Wait. Oh, man. Because there's, there's, something, there's something critical here that we should talk about. Because you actually genuinely feel like Biden's mistake is that he's trying to lead. I have not heard anyone make that criticism of Joe Biden. In fact, what I've heard people say is that he does not look presidential. He just not he doesn't like look even the first. No, so then what he, is
2: basement talking about? No, but he how can't is look he presidential? How is he leading? Guy, how is that a mistake? Because the other guy is able to stand out front of the of the White House and go into the press briefing room or wherever the hell he is on every day and and command from the podium the the free world, right? Because that's that's his right as president. That's the right that, that the Americans have given him. The rest of us, by the way, the rest of the world have pulled the leader of the free world mantle off the president of the United States. They don't get that anymore. They don't get that automatically. But Joe can't compete with that. So this is the problem with every campaign that ultimately winds up losing. You're trying to compete on the wrong factor. If you're trying to compete with leadership against the guy who stands at the podium, the incumbent, you're going to lose. You're going to lose because the other guy, as bad as he is, as bad as Trump is, he's the one who gets to make a decision as to whether or not he fires the inspector general, whether or not he puts, you know, forces uh, states into a free market uh, situation for PPE. That's Trump's decision, not Biden's. Biden doesn't get to make any decisions. Biden has to play to his strengths. He can't be competing as though he's Pelosi or as though he's Bernie or as though he's, um one of the other lesser candidates, he has to be himself and have, and play to his only strength. And his only strength, I would argue, is empathy. Corey, let's t- talk about this tactically very quickly. Given the box
0: that he's in, right, the fact that he's he's not able to go out, he's in the basement, he can't necessarily take the proverbial podium, what what are you advising them? What should he be doing that he isn't right now? He's got a bad podcast, he's got a mediocre app. I mean, he's doing the things Um but they just aren't landing. I mean, is there is there anything that he needs to be doing right now that you'd suggest? Well, first
1: of all, it's a lectern, not a podium. You stand on a podium. Oh you guys are both God, ignorant. We
2: go. I knew Second I was opening all, that up. <laughs> I
1: knew it. Second of all, um, it's not as though Donald Trump's strategy is unbeatable. It's this Rose Garden strategy that Jimmy Carter applied, not to great effect, uh, frankly, right? Which is you're at the White House, you look presidential, you stay off the campaign trail. What what is interesting though is Joe Biden seems to be trying a rose garden strategy without a rose garden. Like he's in one place and he's yeah. he's making these things, but his strength is not empathy. I mean, I mean, he he has this whole Grandpa Simpson thing about uh, rambling stories and whatnot. His strength is that he's not Trump. He's literally from the last administration. He is literally the last guy, right? Yeah. As much as is constitutionally possible. That is the only thing he has going for him right
0: now. And nothing illustrates that point more, Corey, than than the current anticipation for who his new VP is going to be, because there's an expectation that that's going to be the fresh face. That's going to be the female candidate uh, or the female part of the ticket uh, for him. So like if you're if you're tactically looking at the vice presidency and naming your VP heading into, I guess, a, a non-existent Democratic convention, what are you kind of thinking of? Like, are you wanting to put more juice into that? Are you wanting to put the focal point onto Biden instead? Like, are you how are you kind of thinking about this?
1: Uh, <laughs> i mean i guess what's your choice i mean you you either have too much electricity down ticket and everybody starts saying oh boy uh or you have somebody who makes you look good by comparison oh boy right i mean he doesn't have a lot of good choices on that matter win or lose love it or hate it this is going to be an election about him not whoever he puts on his ticket with them we've seen what happens when you try to do the Mavericky choice, right? Uh, John yeah. McCain tried that, and um, sure, we got a great HBO movie out of it. But I, he did great. great is an perfect.
0: overstatement. Just want to let you know, it was that not is- great. It was mediocre at best. <laughs> yeah, a lot of judgment from you Zane. A lot of judgment.
2: When was the last time we had someone down uh, lower on the ticket outshine the guy on the top of the ticket?
1: I, I mean Palin, I, I would argue would be the the one there.
2: I don't think he, that she outshone McCain. I think that she she was an absolute disaster and that took away, but like this idea that you can choose someone who is far too bright, too exceptional, someone who outshines through their competence, the actual leader on the ticket. Like, is that a thing that we really need to worry about? Like if, if he was to choose Kamala, 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 Kamala Harris, who the hell would care? Like, she's phenomenal. I think she's spectacular. I think that her her poise, her presence, her ability to speak would reinforce, you know, all the negatives that Joe Biden brings. But I still don't think she outshines him.
1: Yeah. And, and I think to your point there, it's because it doesn't, because they're not given the microphone for that long or at, at that decibel rating. But if that became the strategy, if it become Joe's a little sleepy. We're going to put somebody else there as the understudy and they're going to be on a few more nights a week. Right. Then there is the real risk of that. And and that is arguably what happened with Sarah Palin, Right. Uh, All of a sudden, McCain was putting her into into these different situations. There was a little too much electricity there. And he, he lost control of his own campaign there. And I'm not saying that the problem with that campaign was that she looked too strong. But certainly it uh, accentuated a lot of the weaknesses that McCain had, because if if the campaign becomes and you said this, so in some ways, I'm going to try to skewer you with your own words here, Stephen. But if, if this is about a ballot question and if the ballot question becomes about who's got the most dynamism and energy and he tries to to say that is it. And so I'm going to do that with my vice presidential pick and I'm going to give it to them. Trump's going to win that. Right. I mean. Love or hate Trump, he's a showman.
0: We're going to leave it there and move on to our next segment. Our next segment, No More Pipe from Uncle Joe. And and listen, this did not deserve its own segment other than for me to just say that title. Uh, let's talk about Joe Biden and Keystone XL. So he came out with the policy proposal yesterday, uh, which is ruffling some feathers here in Canada, saying that he would retroactively rescind the the go forward on Keystone XL if he becomes uh, president. Corey, what do you think? Good strategy, bad strategy, good policy, bad policy? I think I know where you stand on the policy piece, but talk to me about the strategy piece, both for him in the United States, but also kind of the ramifications here.
1: The thing about the strategy is it, it really, to me, underlines the last thing I was saying, and in some ways even fed into my last comments here, which is what is this campaign? And this is just another attempt to get the energy that was with the other campaigns, with the Warren campaign, with the with the Sanders campaign. But it's just so off-brand for who he actually is. I, I wonder if there's any value into it whatsoever. And when you start thinking about those Midwestern swing states that gave the election to Trump last time, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen any polling specific on this issue on KXL, but – it doesn't necessarily strike me as the kind of thing that swing voters who are worried about the slow economic decline of the United States, uh, especially considering how much they lay on the feet of the environmental movement, I, it just doesn't necessarily seem like it's good strategy uh, beyond attempting to mobilize people. And I do not believe it's going to mobilize people. I just, I just at the end of the day, don't think that this was the last thing, oh, like, oh, I'm fine with Joe Biden now, now that he opposes KXL and he's, he's going to kind of flip it around. When you think about the strategy um, for for democratic politics, okay, I guess, but but again, we we have seen election after election, the most recent being twenty sixteen. You don't actually need to be the exciting candidate before the uh, before the general election period begins, because they're all going to rally to you. I mean, the Democrats might not have been excited about Hillary Clinton. I mean, quintessential establishment, right? they were there i mean by november the energy level was nuts on both sides everybody was so charged up i just feel like he spent a lot of currency with swing voters to get a base that was always going to be there with him at the end of the day
0: carter do you believe that do you feel like the left-wing sanders base that has driven a a real deep wedge into the party was going to show up anyways or was there a risk that they sit on their hands and something like this he was absolutely like a necessity for him to do in order to kind of bring them over
2: I think the numbers from 2016 show that there are people who are going to sit on their hands who, who aren't excited by the candidates and who don't come out and vote for them. I don't think you win them over by a single policy announcement. I don't think that saying, well, I'm going to get, you know, we're, we're against KXL or we're going to be for green energy solutions. That's, that's not going to win them over. What's going to win them over is a sense that you represent them. And the problem with Joe Biden and the problem with Hillary Clinton is that they don't represent a lot of these people. Um, so trying to win them over uh, versus saying, "Well, where's my where's my real core?" and I'm going to make that that core go out and vote. Like the reality is, you don't get a hundred percent of the vote out. A hundred percent of voters will not vote. So what's the number of people who will vote? And how do you get fifty one or fifty two percent of those people out? Uh, you need to beat. Um, you need to win in certain states. I'm not sure that. The pipeline, you know, really plays in Wisconsin. I, I just don't see how he's he's winning um, swing states by, you know, opposing a pipeline right down Red America. It's it's very it's very confusing to me. Um, also, I mean, this is a this is a weird pipeline. It's going to be mostly done, or it's going to be in the ground mostly by the time this thing is done. So maybe not entirely, but there's going to be an awful lot of work that is has been completed on this pipeline. Because keep in mind, it's being done in phases. It's not like one pipe from Southern United States all the way up to Alberta. It's been, parts of it already been opened. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm really at a loss to understand how this is uh, going to really change Joe Biden's fortunes.
1: Yeah, I mean, if this was part of who he was and not just a bid to get the kids to love cool, hip Uncle Joe, maybe. But like, I mean, this just comes off as transactional politics, and I just don't think it's going to get him what he wants.
0: Corey, uh, sticking with you on this, so this obviously has ramifications for our country and more specifically for our home province here in Alberta. If you're advising the Alberta government, which up until recently you were, if you were advising them as to how to deal with this, since we've seen this movie before, what would you tell them? Would you tell them to go hard against Biden? Would you tell them to stay quiet in the midst of a pandemic layering on our current sort of context and zeitgeist? What's what's the strategic advice for government?
1: Yeah, I think they did exactly what they needed to do, which was to try to not get dragged into this. The The reality, even in Alberta, is that Donald Trump is a fairly unpopular character. I'm sure they do not want to make this, uh, you know, a proxy war for the United States presidential elections. So the words chosen were measured, and I think that's appropriate. One of the challenges, of course, here in Alberta is that there is going to be a group of people who get very animated by this, right? You're going to see a lot of the pro-Trump Alberta come out here, and there's, look, don't kid yourself, there's a pro-Trump cohort in every province, right? And it's not that much bigger in Alberta. We're really talking on the margins here, but it's going to it's going to just reinforce a bit of a narrative, and it's going to reinforce this sort of victimhood culture. But it really changes the the view of the decision that the government made a couple well, what a month ago now to invest in KXL too, right? It, a, it explains a bit if it looked that precarious. But B, it um, it, it shows you how this was not like Trans Mountain. Right. Like the government investing in Trans Mountain, if you're the federal government, basically de-risk the project that it's going to be built. But when you're dealing with a foreign government that has entirely different political footballs, a lot of problems there. And so the conversation in Alberta, I'm worried will become unhelpful and unhealthy, and it will be about this, this victimhood and look at us and everybody's out to get us. Uh, when maybe it should really be, okay, like, is is this still going to keep happening? Maybe not all the time, but 10% of the time, 20% of the time, say you're very right wing, and you believe that things will swing back, you probably don't assume they're going to swing back forever for all times. And if oil is always going to be perpetually that football, the pipelines are always going to be that conversation that's under threat. As a province, I think it just underlines the need to have a plan B, frankly, right? I mean, we can talk about oil, we can talk about pipelines, we can certainly talk about Trans Mountain opening up markets overseas. But fundamentally, there is a trend here, right? There's a trend in Europe, there's a trend in the United States. And even if you just want to call it a trend with the left in those areas, and I think that would be doing it a disservice because I think it's a broader societal trend, Things are changing, and uh, if whenever there's a left wing government in power in those jurisdictions, our market is going to take a hit, we got to start talking about some smart hedges.
0: Carter, was the Alberta strategy on point here? Measured words, try to stay out of it, or is there something else you'd advise to to um, to respond to to this uh, Biden proposal?
2: I think that the policy of the Alberta government has has been for quite some time to maximize the oil resources that we have while we can. Um uh, there's been in very, you know, in, in the, in the government I was a part of, there was certainly a, a sense that this wasn't going to last forever. Um, of course we didn't take much in the way of action, uh, and it's easy not to take action. Um, the problem that we are seeing now is that we're taking action to try and, and invest and double down on the oil and gas market. Uh, one of the things I've always talked about on this podcast is that the gas market has been dead for a long time you know when when Ralph Klein was balancing the budget in Alberta and posting enormous surpluses and sending out Ralph bucks we had natural gas at 8 9 and 10 dollars we have natural gas under 2 right now um so the only the only thing left is oil oil is incredibly volatile even if you're looking at it and saying well they're, you know we're going to use oil for 30 years or 40 or 50 years of course we are of course we are. It's not a question of whether or not we're going to use oil. It's a question of supply and demand, right? It doesn't matter how much natural gas we're using. We're using more natural gas in the world today than we ever had. But price is still under $2 because we can produce more. And that's the, that's the other side of the equation that I think that Kenny has done us a disservice with because he doesn't talk about what happens when supply is so easy to access in the United States. We're not able to have a price for our our product that makes sense. And then how are we going to diversify? How are we going to get out of this mess? Um, Because getting out of this mess was not taking $8 billion and earmarking it for TransCanada. And from what I'm seeing today, it sounds like KXL, if it is canceled by the next administration, there is no legal opportunity to go back and say, well, we're suing you for all the costs. I'm not sure entirely if that's true. I was, I'm following Andrew Leach. I'll quote him on, on Twitter. He's the one who's asking that question because it sounds like it it isn't going to be just as simple as, well, we'll recoup our losses. And when we say ours, it is now Albertans. Albertans are now invested in that in KXL and it's under threat. And we as a province should be very worried about that. The same way that we as a nation need to be very worried about TMX and making sure that TMX is up as soon as possible and producing so that we're able to recoup our investment as a, as a country in that particular, uh, that particular pipeline.
0: Corey, uh, quick question here. Is there a role for the feds at all strategy wise? Should they, should they keep their, their powder dry on this one? Is there any strategic upside for them to say anything, get involved? What do you think?
1: Well, I, you know, isn't it interesting how we're all getting involved in each other's elections now? You remember when Barack Obama endorsed uh, Justin Trudeau, and hey, here we are. Now we're in a weird world. But the um, the action that the Fed should be taking, and I'm sure are taking, is behind the scenes, right? It, it's working those back channels. It's, it's making sure there's sufficient wiggle room. There's ways that uh, Joe Biden can say when he gets in, like, well, look, I would want to cancel it, but for these reasons, we're already too far, or there's this... You know, there's this change to the legal framework and it would expose us to this liability. I just won't do that to the American people. And shame on Donald Trump for, for putting in this trap so that all of a sudden that we're subject to this liability. Right. I mean, that that's the conversation that needs to be happening behind the scenes. The feds need to be putting in um, essentially these these mechanisms or working with the current U.S. administration to put in mechanisms to ensure KXL goes forward. If, if that's what they want, I suspect it's what they want. Uh, look, it it is not or it should not be controversial that there will be a day after oil for Alberta. We used to talk about this in the 90s, right? But we talked about it then as, hey, we're going to run out of oil someday, Mm -hmm. you know? And, And now the conversation we have is, hey, the world might move past oil someday. That is eliciting a very different, very defensive response for Albertans. Fundamentally, you know, my counsel is we got to be thinking about this as a finite resource regardless, right? Now, whether it's finite because of time and policy or finite because there's only so much effing oil in the ground, we are going to run out and the diversification conversation uh, needs to happen and it needs to happen at an accelerated clip.
0: Carter, any final words, Fed strategy, anything you want to you want to add to what Corey said?
2: No, I, I think the Feds take a, a beating, I guess, on their oil and gas policy, but let's not forget that Um, they're the ones right now who are standing up like adults and telling us that we actually have to start thinking about um, a carbon less atmosphere, like putting out less carbon intense uh, GHGs. um, But we're not doing that in Alberta because we have decided that we hate the Trudeau Liberals. Uh, Let's just leave aside the Trudeau liberals and this look at what the rest of the world is doing. That's what Corey opened with. That's what I'll close with. This isn't just Canada. This is the whole fricking world.
0: Let's move it on to our next segment. And our next segment, sexy has a time and it's 9am Eastern. I want to talk about Justin Trudeau. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about him, his daily press conferences and press briefings, walking out, strolling to the microphone, talking about what's going on that day really controlling the agenda in a similar way to Donald Trump in terms of having no real way for the opposition to get their voice in there unless they shoot themselves in the foot, which we can discuss another time around the conservatives. But let's talk about Justin Trudeau. And Carter, I want to start with you on this, which is, what do you make of the current strategy, right? So I know we're in the midst of a pandemic, we're in the midst of a crisis, but this is the strategist. We talk about political strategy. And what do you think of the trudeau strategy right now of 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 controlling the room is it effective do you feel like there's some there's some roadblocks ahead i just want to kind of hear your thoughts
2: yeah i mean i i think it's great uh i think that owning the agenda from day 1 and announcing everything every day from the same podium at the same time uh i mean it's crisis communications 1 on 1 when you're doing a crisis communication speak o- often speak consistently Tell them what you did yesterday. Tell them what you're going to do tomorrow. That that way you're able to own the agenda, own the communication cycles. And if you look, Justin Trudeau has been successful in that. He's not the only one. Doug Ford has done the same. Jason Kenney, to a degree, has done the same. Um, certainly, uh, um, Adrian Dix, as the health minister in in BC, has has done an amazing job of controlling the agenda. That is crisis communications and watching it being done well at a political level uh, really defines the opposition. And, and, and perhaps the best measure of whether or not Trudeau is doing a good job is taking a look at how Andrew Sheer is completely floundering, unable to find oxygen, unable to speak about what uh, even in critique he would do um, that would be different than this the sitting prime minister. I think it's been brilliant.
0: Corey, same question to you right do you do you feel like there's there's any elements of what Trudeau's doing right now that could backfire or do you feel like because we're in this crisis moment as you as someone who's advised many clients on crisis communications that he can he can control the agenda control the room do you feel like there's any downside to what he's doing
1: Yeah, this is just good crisis comms. And some of the language and the framing here, I just I want to caution about because then people will start thinking every time there's communications people up there during a crisis, it's about control and spin and agenda. But the reality is it's more about clear channels consistently offered, which is something Carter said at the top. So I don't want to pretend that this is cutting against his point here. But look, you open the doors or they're going to come through the windows. And by providing that regular drumbeat of, okay, I'm the media. I know they will be available then. I can ask these questions then. This is how I'm going to get that information. Um, You're actually, you're providing kind of a public safety benefit, right? You know, you're creating this way that fewer rumors are likely to come to life, less disinformation will be out there in the world. And it does have the added benefit of keeping you on agenda. And it does strike me that a lot of what is best practice in crisis communications is best practice in campaigns too, but they're applied for very different reasons. One of them is really more about making sure that you're, 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 you're keeping the landscape clear of, of weeds, right. And uh, like I said, open doors it will come through the windows. When you talk about the federal government's response and you talk about 9am and the Justin Trudeau show, Remember that early on, it was a little confused. He had a lot of ministers out there as well that were almost stepping on top of each other and there'd be multiple daily scrums from the federal government. And that wasn't very good. And that wasn't very clear because it was different people saying different parts of the story, saying different emphasis. They've landed on this over time. This is best practice. And uh, I think they should be commended for that. I don't think though that the liberals should kid themselves that their poll numbers and approval ratings right now are anything but artificial and based on the moment we're in.
0: Yeah, yeah, Carter. And I wanted to get into this because, of course, with an eye to re-election and a minority government, uh, what's the what's the strategy to kind of maintain what Corey's called artificially inflated polls, but how do you maximize them? Even though you know they're going to take a dip, how do you maximize them going forward or try to lock them in as much as you can in this moment?
2: Well, I'm going to answer with an unusual answer for me, and that is I don't know. Um, and I don't know for- for. We don't do that years. on the show, Stephen. You're I know, supposed right? to be bombastic I and loud. Look. <laughs> I'm not done yet. Um, Here we go. Here's why I don't know. Um, If this is a single bump that ends, let's say, by the end of June, and we get back to something vaguely resembling normal life by September, um, then it's very difficult to see this sustaining itself to the next election, regardless of when the next election is. However, if this does what other pandemics in history have done, with one bump, two bumps, three bumps, four bumps then you have a very long-term model where normalcy is out the window. And in that environment, I think that the Trudeau government can, or or frankly, any of the provincial governments, I don't want to make this partisan, it's not about the Trudeau liberals, it's about the government of the day, whether it's Jason Kenney, Doug Ford, or, or Justin Trudeau, those governments can be successful by continuing to own the communication cycle. I don't think we ever tire in a crisis of being told um, what's happening, what's going on, what the government's thinking. Uh, I think that we will pay attention for as long as these blips continue to, you know, the humps continue to happen. Um, But if this is over right away, if this is it, if it was a one, one time wonder, then um, I really don't know how it ends.
0: Corey, inverse question to you. If you're, if you're the, you know, alleged front runner, Peter McKay right now for the conservatives, what are you trying to do? I mean, outside of putting up bad memes and getting some um, some amateur advice about your campaign, what are you trying to do to pierce through and ensure that these temporary poll numbers are just that, temporary?
1: Well, you know, if I'm in the McKay campaign, I am not. I think it would be a real mistake to be focused on what the liberals are doing right now. I am not at all convinced that when they start counting the ballots for the conservative leadership, that, that he's got the energy on his side, that's going to carry mm. him over the, over the ballot. So, so wrong focus is what I would say. If I'm Peter McKay, I'm not talking about how I bring the fight to Trudeau. If I am, it's only in the context of proving to my conservative compatriots um you know, that I'm, that I'm the fighter and the shit kicker I need to be to, to win the next election. Uh, instead I would really, really be drawing those contrasts with, with my major conservative opponents. And, um, that's a totally different audience. That's a totally different radio play. So, you know, if that's his focus right now, he's way ahead of himself and he's making that classic quote unquote front runner mistake.
0: Carter, do you agree? Should McKay kind of assume a leadership position, go toe to toe with Trudeau or should his focus squarely be Within this leadership race that Corey, I think, very astutely points out, is is not locked up for him.
2: Well, I I would be focusing on the leadership race. The problem is that the way that he seems to be focusing on the leadership race is to say, "Well, I have to go and find the most right wing conservatives that I possibly can, and I'm going to appeal to the right wing conservatives in the same fashion that um, happened." Peter McKay, I've
1: just I've just realized he's the Joe Biden. Of the right in Canada, I yeah. mean they're they're playing the exact same playbook in reverse.
0: Someone it, get this guy a bad podcast in a basement, and we're there.
2: Oh my god, <laughs> it's. it's... He might
0: have one. Has anybody looked? <laughs> no, no, no one has looked. I, Carter, you may have looked, but I have definitely not looked.
2: Oh, no, I can assure you, I have not looked for the Peter McKay podcast. Uh, it's, it's hard enough to listen to him in interviews. He Pick is up not the phone a- with
0: Peter McKay. Is that what his thing was, by the way? Just a total detour? That thing where he tried to convince people to have the election early? I don't know. Will you answer the call? Anyways, Carter, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you. Go ahead.
2: No, I mean, it's, it's the worst. I, I just don't understand these leadership campaigns, especially leadership campaigns on the right. It is like a, a constant battle to win over the most hardened conservatives. Um, and the thing that kills me is that the hardened con- conservatives are the most fleeting um, group. They will jump ship on you every opportunity they get. They are not loyal. They will jump to the next guy as fast as humanly possible. And uh you know, it certainly doesn't build for long-range electoral success. Uh, and I think that Justin Trudeau is probably happy every single day to watch Peter McKay uh, walk towards um, the, the the right wing of the party. It, it's got to be making him so happy.
1: Well, look, I'm not breaking new ground to say that there are left wing and right wing purity tests. And the problem with the most... Uh the most strident supporters on both sides are you only need to fail the purity test once and you're dead to them. Uh, to your point, I think Steven, so, yeah. so they're always looking for the next flavor of the month that the next person who can, can show their righteousness for the cause fighting against any kind of unpopularity that may exist with the center and whatnot and saying, look at them. They're a paragon of excellence because they have always been there no matter how unpopular that opinion was. But you know, We do live in a democracy, so you do need to turn your eye to the entire country at a certain point if you want to give uh, or be given the opportunity to govern. So at some point, we're going to have to unpack these leadership race overall and some of these broader trends that have occurred here because they're they're pretty interesting, Um, whether it's here or in the United States or even in Europe. How these things are unfolding now is really, I don't know, I would say suboptimal, but that might
0: be the understatement of the year. I want I want to close this bracket on Trudeau before we move on. Uh, Carter, to you, you know, crisis communications isn't a blank check. It doesn't mean you just get to do whatever you want as however long this crisis lasts. So the question I have for you is, is what roadblocks or barriers does Trudeau and, and his and his political team need to be aware of as they as they suck up all the oxygen during this pandemic?
2: Well, one of the things I like to remind people of is that we're all inherently selfish. So as voters, we're we're tremendously selfish people. So my view is that as long as Trudeau continues to play to our selfishness, he should be fine. If he starts to ask us to collectively make sacrifices beyond that, which we are prepared to make for ourselves... Um, then he runs into trouble. And that's where, we ran in, that's where we run into trouble with spending cuts. Everybody's pro-spending cuts until it impacts them, right? Everybody's pro-taxation increases as long as it increases taxes on someone else. Um, those are kind of our, our baked in positions. I think that there's going to be um, some calls for something vaguely resembling retribution. Uh, you know, I think that if you were ever going to pass a wealth tax in Canada, uh, this fall is probably the time to do it. Um, you could just simply take some tweets from some billionaires, uh, put them together in a greatest hits album, and you could have a wealth tax by the end of the weekend. Uh, so, you know, there's, there are certain populist elements that are available to him that he should be willing to take. And, uh, he shouldn't ask too much of us because we are, we're still scared. We're still afraid of the future and asking a lot of the general population will create havoc. Um, but there are others uh, that, we, will be, that are, we are more than willing to take retribution on.
0: Corey, final word in the segment to you. What, what are the roadblocks you need to be aware of? It's
1: like the most demoralizing, cynical thing Stephen Carter has said in months. That's just ridiculous. Ask not what you can do for your country. Ask what your country can do for you. The because Stephen it. Carter version of the JFK <laughs> speech. It's Listen, like
2: man, Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong.
1: Look, I mean, you're not exactly rocking my world by saying people are fundamentally self-interested when it comes to these things, but there are better angels you can call to here. And uh, I do share your uh, you know, view that this is probably a good opportunity to do something big. Um, one of the things that do- uh, Donald Trump, uh, well, frankly, Donald Trump, too, but Donald Trump, Justin Trudeau, anybody who's leading a nation right now needs to be very, very nervous about is that they have done in a matter of weeks – what we were always told was basically impossible, right? Like universal basic incomes can't really be done. Uh, All of these supports that would bankrupt the country. Well, we did them all. Uh, The country's still standing. I'm not saying that there's not going to be long-term consequences for that economically, fiscally, all of those things. But government has kind of proven that it can be the solution to some pretty big questions here. I mean, if you wanted a proof of concept for some of these things and the ability of government to deeply intervene in the economy, uh, told everyone to stay home, gave everybody a bunch of money as basically paying all of Suncorp's employees right now. I mean, like this pretty fundamental remaking of society and they did it overnight, right? I mean, in the blink of an eye in terms of, of governance processes and whatnot. So if I am a leader of a nation right now, I am really worried about the expectations that I have set. And I am really worried, I, I think more broadly, frankly, about how we've kind of just broken all of the rules of the game. you you want to talk about standard economics and moral hazard, this idea that uh, some behavior is just de-risked by government. So those, those behaviors get implemented, even though they're really bad, right? Well, we used to talk about the global financial crisis being bad for that, right? Like all of these companies that should have gone out of business, we propped up because we had to, Mm because otherwise mm -hmm. we're screwed. We have done that times 10, you know, way worse than it was or better, whatever your view is than during the GFC. And, you can't do that without remaking some things. And so I'd be worried about expectations. I'd always, I'd also be worried about what I need to do to kind of unspool this and clean this all up.
0: Yeah, And, and on, on that, Carter, I want to just ask one more follow-up, which is the time to do big things requires political capital. So when you're facing a, an election potentially in a minority situation, how do you get these things done? You've got this golden opportunity with this vector presented to you with, with cloud cover of COVID, so to speak but you're also not operating with the majority government. What's what's the what's the move?
2: I'd act as though I was running with a majority government. Who's my opposition? Who are the people who are actually opposed to me? The conservative MPs. That's about it. Um, you're not going to see the same opposition out of the New Democrats. You're not going to see the same opposition out of the Green Party or the Bloc Québécois. So you've got a de facto majority government. And the leader for this, the person who showed us how to do this the best, Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper's minority was operated as a majority because he knew ultimately no one else wanted to bring the government down. So if the government, if no one wants to go to an election, then you get to operate as though you've got a majority. And believe me, no one wants to go to an election. No one has the money, no one's ready, and no one wants to fight on these terms.
0: All righty, let's move it on from there to our next segment. Our next segment, mailbag listener questions. All right, let's move it on to our next segment, the over, under, and lightning round. (laughs) Like what I did there? They sent so many questions. Thank you, by the way, all of you to sending your questions. You should have known we're not going to read any of them. Uh, Our over, under, and our lightning round. Corey, over to you. On a scale of one to 10 how would you rate Jason Kenney's performance this week, shifting to Alberta politics? So as a reminder to the audience, you know, he this week also encompassed when he came out in the 11th hour, quite literally with 11 hours left telling Calgary they couldn't open some key industries at the same time. How would you rank his performance this week?
1: Oh, you know, I I would say a seven. It's it's not ideal. The 11 hour thing, that's certainly given a lot of fodder for people. But what are you going to do? I mean, I at the end of the day, is it preferable? Is it preferable that you say go ahead, even though it's not safe? Is it preferable you make that call before you need to? I'm I'm not sure there was a good solution here.
0: Carter, one to ten for Jason Kenny.
2: I'm going to give him a six, and I'm just going to pick up. I mean, the the difference between 11 hours and 24 hours is actually mark, quite significant, uh, and they knew the answer 24 hours before, uh, so they should have given the answer as soon as they had it. Uh, and I think that's one of the elements of crisis communications and you're doing proper crisis communications. When something has changed, you communicate it. You don't just blindly stick to the to the communication cycle. And that's where Kenny failed us.
1: Well, what you're doing, though, is you're, you're baking in an assumption there, right? That this was a done deal 24 hours before. And maybe it was, but you don't know.
2: That's the reports I'm saying is that it was done in advance.
0: Here we go. That's the Carter we know. Just just piecing together whatever, and just being bombastically confident about it. I love it. You're back, Stephen.
2: I'm back. That moment of of I don't know is gone. It's my uh, rearview it, mirror. Which is why this
0: next question comes to you because even though she's no longer in in politics anymore, on a scale of one to ten, jewel pods, how smart was it for Rona Ambrose to take a board seat with uh, with an e-cigarette manufacturer?
2: I'm sure it is a ten financially. Uh, but politically, it was about a one. Oh, my God. That was brutal. That was brutal. But you know what? Y- you can't begrudge people making a living. But at the same time, man, there's got to be more opportunity out there. Verona Ambrose.
0: Corey, one to 10 jewel pods. What are you ranking this? Well, it depends on how successful
1: she is. She's obviously part of a strategy, right? And that strategy uh, that Jewel is implementing is is presenting Jewel as a safe alternative to smoking, and maybe not even something that you should fear at all. Maybe maybe this this whole idea of like vape lung and whatnot has just been overblown, and certainly wasn't tied to anything like Jewel. It was it was tied to kind of these these off. Black market versions of all of this. So, if at all at the end of all of this, Jewel comes out as, as the healthy alternative, and that is in part because they managed to get a federal effing health minister on their board of directors to be able to say, "Listen, I understand these things. I understand the science. This is something we're tackling. That's fine." Well, then she's she's gravy. It's it's great, right? It's almost a smoking cessation thing, and she can walk out of that with her pockets full and with her conscience clear. But if this goes a different way, then, I mean, she's basically she's basically a PR firm working for big tobacco, like one that the three of us used to work for. Right. (laughs) And it's going to it's going to look
2: bad. bad. But
0: by the way, Pockets Full and Conscious Clear is the handbook that every (laughs) uh, brown child gets when when they're two years old. Uh, It is it is our guiding light. Uh, I got one alongside the Quran just to let you know. Uh, People needed to know that people needed to know that. Uh, at this stage of the podcast. We're intimate enough. Carter, to you, one redo for Justin Trudeau this week. Anything that you saw policy-wise, we're talking about borders, we're talking about extending uh, their closures, or politically that you would, you'd want Justin Trudeau to have a redo on?
2: Oh, man, I don't think there is anything. I feel like You're the, very the... complimentary. There, yeah, as I don't know who's what's a... wrong with me. I gotta, I'm going to have to do some, uh, I mean, all of my redos go, to, I mean, I, my, my, I guess my outrage is just so tackled and contained with Trump. That I'm not able to, to really focus. I mean, I, I, the, the only redo that I would do is, is the redo for for Kenny on uh, on announcing the uh, the restaurant's closure in, in Calgary a little bit late. But Corey, I, I, I'm on- not that critical of any of the governments that are doing this except the U.S. federal one.
0: Corey, anything on Trudeau? Any redos that he needed this week?
1: I don't. I, I don't think so. A, a bit of the both sidism around the fight between China and the United States around the WHO was probably as. I mean, it was so lame, but it was so liberal. I mean, it, it's just very on brand with them. But I, I would have liked to have seen an actual policy statement there instead of this. Just this. I, I don't know. I, I personally felt it was just weak. Um, but would no? I mean. The world keeps spinning. Uh, people continue to get their SERP checks. The federal government continues to do very well in the polls. And um, when we look next door, I mean, I think we're all relatively thankful. So so not much to say about Trudeau.
0: Corey, back to you. You know, over, under, on one, over, under, on one, the number of political aides Andrew Scheer talked with before telling Evan Solomon that he is not continuing his rescinding of his U.S. citizenship, that that cringeworthy moment. How many people did Andrew Shear talk to?
1: What are the rules about selling insurance in the United States? Like, <laughs> what was the logic of this? I don't know. I mean, like, the, the thing that confuses me about this sincerely is, why not? Like, is his plan to go to the United States? Does he just want to continue to file U.S. taxes? I, I don't. I don't know what his post-politics play is, but I'm actually quite surprised to hear it would be potentially leaving the door open to America. And it's just it's just a bit of a nail in the coffin to what was previously a pretty good political career. You think about him as being the youngest speaker and where he is now as, as just this universally acknowledged disappointment. It didn't need to be like this. And I just don't know why he wants to go out on this note.
2: Well, he was really acknowledged as a pretty darn good speaker. I mean, he wasn't seen as being overly partisan. He wasn't seen as being, uh, uh, you know, not knowledgeable of the rules. He knew what he was doing as the speaker and he did a fine job and now he's He's that guy, and uh, that's that's quite a step down.
1: Well, it tells you a lot about what he thinks his prospects are in this country. Yeah, as well.
0: I'm going with under, and who knows, he might up and end up in Oklahoma. That seems to be the most popular place, (laughs) both past and present. Uh, By the way, if if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google Michelle Rempel Oklahoma, and then uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Rob Anders Oklahoma, and you'll find a clip from eight years ago where he looks like a total lunatic at a Republican debate.
1: I'm going to throw this back to you, Zane. Late Do you on me. think that by the end of the year, uh, Oklahoma will have more MPs than Alberta will have uh, opposition MPs?
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> there is no doubt about it whatsoever, especially depending on the outcome of the election in November. But yes, that is very, very likely. All last question to you, Corey. You know, Stephen has asked for some assessment on the podcast and he wanted it done in public on a scale of one to 10. How has Stephen performed today?
1: Oh, terribly. I, I mean, so bad that I, I'm not even going to bother reminding you that 1 to 10 is a terrible scale because it's only got nine points yeah. on it. We'll, we're going we'll to give
0: me a C. It's 11. A C plus. <laughs> uh, Carter, add your take on how Corey could uh, decipher how many numbers are between 1 and 10 because he had to take three shots at it there, but that's fine. I got it. It's okay. It's still right that's fine Corey's, we'll leave it Corey's there we're going to leave it anybody else's performance. Carter I just Corey. said we're leaving it there we're leaving it there we're leaving it there okay fine I'll give you one more chance to take a jab at Corey wow way to end with a bang Zane yeah no why well, are you why are you with that? that's a wrap on episode 802 of The Strategist my name is Zane Velji with me as always Corey Hogan David Carter we'll see you next time